In these uncertain economic times, it's easy to be worried about protecting your wealth, your hard-earned savings, and your family's financial future. Plunging interest rates, the devaluating dollar, and political unrest constantly threaten what you have worked hard to earn and all that you own. That's why now it's more important than ever to protect your assets and have the money you need to make your dreams come true. Welcome to the Global Wealth Fortress Report with successful global entrepreneur and wealth preservation expert, Joel Nagel. Joel's helped thousands of people just like you protect what you have so that you can make even more and make your every dream come true. So, sit back and enjoy Joel Nagel's offshore expert advice on how you can live the good life at a great price, where the sun never sets on your financial fortress. Hello, 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 and welcome to Joel Nagel's Global Wealth Fortress Report. Increasingly, we find people are moving offshore in order to find a wealth fortress, and there's no better expert on the movement offshore and protecting your assets in that wealth fortress than Joel Nagel, America's number one asset protection attorney. Joel, what's going on? What's the move offshore? I know you must have clients talking to you about it all the time at this point. Hey, Carter. Uh, yeah, thanks. And it's great to be with you again this week. Um, let's start by talking about the term expat, right? People throw that term around a lot. And, you know, the the, the the understanding that most people have for expat is just people who live abroad. So you move to Germany, you're working there. Hey, I'm, I'm in the expat community. That's the way most of us use that term. But the term expatriate is actually a legal term. And that means not only leaving the country, but actually giving up your, you know, your initial citizenship. So if you're American, you're giving up your U.S. citizenship. Now, historically, we had very many people in that first bucket of expat, you know, the, the casual term, uh, but right. very few people in the, the expatriate term. Yeah. And but what we've seen over the over the last, you know, I mean, it, it's it's been a trend uh, for two decades, really. I mean, you know, when I would speak at a conference, let's say 30 years ago there'd be one squirrely guy in the back of the room that would want to come up and talk to me about, you know, expatriation or getting a second passport or something like that. It was right. always kind of like hush, hush, you know, I have this thing I want to talk to you about. And since you're a lawyer, you know, now of course it's, it's wide out in the open. Um, I just saw a statistic the other day that 89 members of Congress have a second citizenship, which, you know, wow. for whatever reason, I mean, there's what, there's about a little over 500 yeah. congressmen and yeah. senators. So, you know, 80, that's a, what's that about one in six? One in six. Um, Absolutely. Shocking. Yeah, yeah Shocking. exactly. And it could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be doing the, the type of work that I do, helping people uh, to, to get a second passport through investment, things like that. Could be ancestral, could be they were born abroad came to the U.S., became American, uh, but didn't give up their, their other citizenship. So there's a lot of reasons for it. But the, the difference, the reason I started with that is the difference between expat and expatriate is, is really quite big. And, and um, you know, that's, I, I think that's what you're 
um, audience needs to know and understand. So in right. one case, you're, you live abroad, you, you, you're still under the umbrella of the U.S. You have a U.S. passport. Um, you still have to file and pay your U.S. taxes. You're subject to all regulations, even if you live abroad. In the other scenario, if you actually expatriate, you're, you're not under any of those. So when somebody says, hey, I don't want to pay another cent of tax, well, there is a way to legally do that, and that's called expatriation. Historically, not many people did it. Starting about 20 years ago, we saw the numbers grow, and then they grew faster and faster and faster. And it, it really didn't matter you know, whether you had a Republican in the White House or a Democrat or Republican Senate or Democratic Senate House. It didn't matter. I mean, half the population is very upset either way. So there's, yeah. it's, it's a very fertile market for that. And I, I, the, the, the latest statistics that, that I've read in the last two years, there are really almost no statistics because since COVID, uh, the, um, the U.S. has not allowed its consular offices to schedule expatriation interviews. To actually give up your citizenship, you have to fill out a bunch of papers then you have to schedule an appointment at a U.S. embassy or consulate abroad. You cannot give up your U.S. citizenship in the U.S. Why? Because then what would your legal right to be in the U.S.? You'd have to have a visa. So you can only give up your, your U.S. Uh, passport abroad. And for the last you know two plus years, the embassies have not taken expatriation interviews claiming COVID and you know backlog of other work and what have you. So they're, they're really trying to stall... And, and keep people who want to become expatriates from doing that. Now, before they did that, the numbers had grown from, you know, the low several hundreds per year. And think about that, two, three hundred people a year out of a country of, you know, 350 million, it's statistically zero, right? I mean, right. you know, that was, that was 20, 25 years ago when I gave you the example of the squirrely guy in the back of the room. Right. Um, but then we started to see it go up. It went to a thousand and then a couple thousand and, and then 10,000. And you might say, well, geez, 10,000 out of 350 million is still almost statistically zero. But, you know, two or 300 and 10,000, well, that, that's a 50, 60, 70 factor yeah. uh, increase. And you can imagine that, you know, like last year we had several million illegal immigrants come to the U.S. and maybe you know, 10,000 people leave the U.S. Uh, so it's not like we're going to run out of people <laughs> this way. But think about what those 10,000 people represent. They tend to be the best educated, some of the wealthiest people. They're entrepreneurs. They, they're they the job creators. Um, so to have a constant drain where every year you lose 10, 15, 20,000 people in that sector, I think that that eventually will hurt the U.S. I really do. Oh, and, and, yeah. And let's put this in perspective about, yeah, a huge numbers coming in. I think Biden let in two million last year, illegal aliens and 10,000 leaving. But it's the, you know, let's call it the Baltimore syndrome. What happened to Baltimore when I was a kid, there were 914,000 people in Baltimore. Now, I think there are not even three to 400,000. But the people who left were the people who were the taxpayers and the workers 
and the producers. Okay. So what we have now, I'm glad you brought that out. So 10,000 leave who are hardworking, good people and the 2 million coming in. Well, I can tell you what they tell my wife. You know, all, all of my wife's friends and relatives are legal aliens. As you know, my wife's from Honduras. She is legal. And they tell her, what you do that for? Why did you come in legally? <laughs> you don't get any of the benefits we do. And we don't pay taxes. And you have to. So that's a very, your point is very well taken. And, and as a quick aside, you know, I was just talking to a client of mine uh, in Belize shortly before the, the, the program. And he was telling me one of his best workers was leaving. He has a, a decently high paying job. He was leaving uh, and saved up his money and he was traveling through Mexico and planned to illegally enter the United States because his mother-in-law, who's in the United States illegally, told him that this is the time to come and nobody's going to turn you away. Nobody's going to oh, yeah. stop you. So I'm not saying that, that, that those two million people aren't you know, honest, hardworking. I think the vast majority of them are. Absolutely. Uh, but, but at the same time, like you're pointing out, you know, there's going to be a huge demand on our social infrastructure, our schools, our hospitals, social welfare. Um, you know, it's it, it the, the money outflow associated with that is massive. And then the outflow of the 10,000, you know, Americans who leave, that's massive also. So, you know, it's 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 two countervailing trends, but they both have the same effect on the treasury, which is less money. Less money. Now, I, I got to ask you, because I, I have a feeling that for offshore club members, this thought has to occur to them. Let me put it in perspective real quick. About a week or so ago, a guy who is worth $26.8 billion announced that he was moving himself and his company out of Chicago. Okay. He was fed up with the crime and the sky high taxes. Okay. I think 10 to 12%. I got to ask you this. You have some very wealthy clients. If I'm a wealthy client, why do I stay in the United States and pay the 40 to 50 to 60% of my money in taxes? Why don't I just move to Honduras and get rid of the U.S. citizenship? I don't need it. I have a business and uh, not pay all those taxes. Why not? Why not? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of answers to that, honestly, Carter. I mean, you know, people feel that they're American. They they grew up here. A lot of cases they have family, their their parents, their 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 siblings. There's always the concern that if you leave, you know, and you don't and you're unable to get a visa to come back, then essentially you could you could be blocked. Uh, Congress has actually threatened to do that on numerous occasions. They have ne they've never done that. Uh, but they've threatened to do that, meaning if you, you know, give up your U.S. citizenship, you would automatically become barred from entering the United States. Um, so I think I think that, you know, that does worry people. Right. Um, but, you know, everybody has their own breaking point. And, you know, I, what I hear more and more is, look, I don't mind paying taxes, but I just don't like the things that my taxes are going towards and what they're going for. And again, you know, you can make that same comment whether you come from, you know, the right end of the political spectrum or the left end of the political spectrum, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's everything. I mean, one of the, one of the things I hear the most, quite honestly, is nothing to do with, um, you know, taxes. It's grandkids. I hear grandkids all the time. Grandkids. Oh yeah. Yeah. Grandkids. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the, you know, and I do hear that from offshore club members and, and I don't want to sound callous, 
what do I tell them? You go buy a beautiful home at somewhere like Grand Pacifica, which, you know, you, you developed down there, you and Mike Cobb down there in uh, Nicaragua, gorgeous residential resort community. You buy a home down there for one-tenth the price you would up here on the ocean, beautiful beach. I have a feeling your grandkids will come to visit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, I think things like this, Zoom, you know, these types of forums work really great uh, and allow people to interact even if they can't be in physical proximity. So, yeah, you've got the, the personal issues on the one hand, you know, taxes is by far the overreaching um, item on the other side. In addition to taxes, frequently I hear about tax and regulatory complexity. I, I get that more and more. I mean, people are saying, look, I, again, uh, tell me I owe 32% tax and I'll pay it. But, you know, a lot of my clients, if you look at their tax filings, it's 400 pages and, and they're constantly worried. Is this right? Am I going to get fined? Am I going to get penalized? Is, is, you know, are my bank accounts going to get um, frozen? People are worried about that kind of stuff and they really shouldn't have to. And these are, these are law abiding people. They're doctors and lawyers and, you know, um, but you know, the, the bureaucracy has grown, you know, this notion of drain the swamp, I think applies nowhere better than the IRS. And, you know, I'm sure I put a big target on my back for saying that, but yes, you just did. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. look, the, the initial tax return, the, the, the initial tax re requirements when, when, you know, the tax returns first started were, were one page and it grew to a couple pages. But, you know, you go through, if you have any money, any investments, any property, you know, let alone start adding things like foreign assets, foreign trusts, foreign property. It's just, it's crazy how much uh, regulatory compliance there are. And, um, you know, I've had people say that, look, I, 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 I want to uh, live abroad. The interesting thing is if you, if you become an expat and not an expatriate and you just move abroad, of course, you're still subject to tax on your worldwide income, but the U.S. does give you a credit for taxes that are paid in another country. So there's this really ironic thing that some people don't mind paying taxes. They just don't want to pay U.S. taxes. And I had a very wealthy client <laughs> sort of gleefully tell me the other day they moved to France where they're paying 60% tax. But by paying 60% French tax, they pay zero U.S. tax. And that's completely wow. legal as well. So again, there's there's different motivations for everybody. I'm I'm not suggesting that you run out and move to France so you can pay more taxes, but you know everybody's different um, when it comes to that issue of expat versus expatriate. Yeah, and I think you know for for those of your client uh, of your clients who are worried about the very aggressive uh, uh, income tax investigations, keep in mind that these uh, Senator po uh, Pocahontas. Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. This almost sounds like a joke out of Babylon B, but she has introduced a bill called the Restore the IRS Act. Restore the I now the first thing you think is I didn't know it needed to be restored. It looks pretty damn healthy, but thirty she wants thirty five billion more a year for the IRS to hire ten thousand new agents to yeah. come and comb your clients' tax returns. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, the problem is that the only way you get promoted and advance in a career like that is to find problems. And I've yeah. had clients, you know, I've had people tell me like, Hey, I've got this IRS agent and they're, they're, they're auditing me 
and they can't find anything wrong, but they're not leaving until they find something because, you know, if they don't find something wrong and find me for something and, and get um, payment of back taxes, interest on something, you know, they're not going to go away. And I'm, you know, so it's, it's like, uh, it's worse than blackmail. It's worse than blackmail. In the, in the, in the area of asset, asset protection, you've all, you always say, you know, the, the, the key, the, the the playing the defense is 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 the key. Playing defense is the key, um, and we remember that I think it was the '83 Ravens who beat your Pittsburgh Steelers because we only allowed six an average of six points a game on defense. <laughs> Come on, so, so I, I'm sorry, I just have to bring that up. The, yeah, the, yeah, I um, get it. I get it. The but how many but, Super Bowls has Baltimore won? By the way, what do you say? How many Super Bowls has Baltimore won, by the way? <laughs> I think Terry Bradshaw alone has won more Super Bowls than the Baltimore Ravens have won. But but the 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 if I want to protect my assets, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, if I move to somewhere like let's say um, Honduras, the average annual income per capita is one thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, even up to somewhere like uh, Peru, 6,000, Paraguay, 5,000, uh, Belize, gorgeous country where you have Grand Bayman, another uh, residential resort that you and Mike Cobb have, gorgeous, gorgeous. And in, in Belize, the average income is only 4,000 uh, a year. So isn't a good way to protect your assets to move to a country where you, if, if that's the average income, then obviously you can live off that. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're trying to protect assets by spending less then absolutely. I mean, you know, if you move to any of those countries in Central America, you know, it depends where, of course, you know, there are places on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, Pacific coast of Panama, where you have these very high end communities where, you know, it rivals Miami. But, you know, for the most part across the board, you're absolutely right. Um, The fact that the wages are low keeps the costs low, right? Because people can't afford that. There, there's no way that, you know, people selling, uh, let's say, uh, oranges can jack up the price of oranges because one, they produce a lot. And two, people can't afford to pay more for them than, you know, whatever it is. So yes, um, a lot of my clients, particularly that are on fixed income, social security, pensions, things like that, they find that they can live a very a much higher quality of life for less money. Because, you know, if you make uh, $2,000 a month, let's say in, in in Belize, you just said the average annual wage is 4,000 per year. So, right. you know, if you have 2,000 a month social security, that's 24,000. So that's, that's six times the average wage. And yeah, you're going to live pretty well. You know, you might not live on Ambergris Key with that, uh, the main tourist island, but, you know, any other part of the country, you can really live comfortably, um, you know, pay rent, buy groceries, maybe have a, a maid or, you know, a cook or people to, to help you, particularly as you get older, people want to have, you know, more access to things like that, uh, just to maintain uh, a, a higher standard and quality, quality of life. That same $2,000 in South Florida, you know, you're, you're not getting much for that. No, you're not getting much at all. And I think, you know, we've discussed this, you know, I keep going back to Grand Pacifica because I know the prices of homes there. If I had, I, I always show one picture that I, I don't have in front of me right now, but it's a gorgeous beachfront home for just over 200,000. Okay. That in the U S 
we have we have the the ten percent factor. You know that that home in the U.S. would cost you ten times as much. Ten Easy, times maybe, as much, easily, maybe, right? Maybe more. I mean, look, if if you you know that section of the Pacific Coast is is stunningly beautiful and it rivals Southern California. So a home like that in Southern California, you know, put it in, you know, overlooking the Pacific Ocean there. Um, yeah, your your two million would be a steal, probably be four, five, six million. So, you know, you do the math, people can afford a lifestyle in Latin America that they cannot afford in the US. There's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt. And I think last week you came to us from the Azores, which, by the way, was just a wonderful, wonderful podcast with, uh, with those great people. What were their names? The, the High Highlighters. The Hochleitners. 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 Holt just a, the, We've got some nice letters about it. People thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you for bringing them on. But I, well, I think the Azores it has an incredibly low cost of living. I think in some ways comparable to places like... Um, uh, Costa Rica or Panama, I think Costa Rica and Panama, the average income is about 11000 a year, okay? And I think the Azores cost of living is comparable to there, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of our, you know, we were kind of torn whether we wanted to try to expand our model and our footprint into Europe. And one of the reasons that was kind of holding us back was <clears throat> most of Europe is more expensive than the U.S. Um, so you have to look for little pockets where, you can still get really good value. And, uh, you know, we looked at a lot of different places and, uh, you know, the, the Portugal is such a popular country right now because of its golden visa program. But right. most of the places on the mainland, like like Lisbon or the Algarve or Porto, you know, the, the, the prices there have risen so much that we looked at it and said, you know, this really just can't fit our model. Uh, then we went to the Azores and it was... Uh, such a tremendous, you know, beautiful surprise. The the people, the landscape, the weather, the food, the cost of living. I mean, you just go right down the, the line. I mean, it checks the boxes for a lot, a lot of people, particularly if you want, you know, Europe, but you also maybe want close Europe because you don't have to, you know, fly 10 hours to get there. It's it's really, uh, it's basically halfway to Europe. So that's, uh, it's nice to, 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 to be there. And you know, it's, you know, the, the book is still out, um, you know, we're kind of treading into new territory, uh, but I think it's going to do really well for the reasons that you say is that, you know, again, if, if you move there with $2,000 a month, social security income, I mean, if you have a little pension of three or $4,000, or you have, you know, a, a stock portfolio of a couple million and you need to live on that for the rest of your life, uh, I think, you know, the Azores is a great uh, choice. You don't get really, really hot. You don't get cold. You know, you have this very temperate climate. If you want to play golf year round or fish or, or, you know, whatever it is that you like to do hike, it's a big place for hiking. So yeah, I can't say enough good things about, about the Azores. And I know we're, we're uh, talking about having a, an offshore club conference there. So uh, that'd be yeah. great to do that. Which is going to be great. I think in January, February, and I think Miss Holtleitner said that the when, when I asked her about the cost of living, she said, if you can bring in $1,500 a month, she said, you can live very well here, which sounds very much like the countries in Central America that we've been discussing. Very Well, much to, put it, to, to put it in context, when we closed on the villa, we went to one of the finest restaurants in, um, 
in uh, Punta Delgada, which is the, the main city, the capital of San Miguel, which is the main island in the Azorean chain. And, you know, I had 10 people and, uh, you know, there were, on, there were um, appetizers, main courses, desserts, wine, uh, beer, um, after dinner drinks, coffee. I mean, we, 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 we had 10 people sitting around eating and drinking for over three hours in a really beautiful, quaint uh, place in, in Punta Delgado. And with the tip, it was about $200. So wow. you do that math, that's, you know, that's, that's $20 a person, $20 a person. you know, you're, you're hardly, you know, getting out of McDonald's for that these days. No, you're not getting out of McDonald's for that nowadays. So I think put it all back into perspective because you've told us this over and over, you know, you can protect your assets by, you know, in finding ways to increase your assets or to not spend as much. And I think, I think today we've covered very well that there are, remarkable ways to not spend as much in central South America. And now thanks to what you're doing in the Azores. Yeah. Yeah. I think I look, there's only two ways to get a better quality of life. You either have to make more money, you know, hope your investments do better and have more money that way, which is tough in this environment or yeah. look at ways to, to save money on, on the, on the expense side of the ledger. And um, yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job of helping people, really locate these these pockets because that's what they are. They're pockets, places that you can go live a high quality of life for less money. And uh, yeah, to me, that is asset protection. If if you can live on your pension, then you don't have to spend any money from your nest egg. And then, you know, ultimately when you pass away, you have more money for your kids, grandkids. That's all asset protection. It's fantastic. Joel, it's been great. Once again, thank you very much. It's great to see you. Nice to have you back in the U.S., Thank you, Carter. Are you going to be here next week in the U.S. again? Or are we going to be talking? You no, know, I, 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 I might be. There's a few things going on that I might have to run down to Central America. But uh, I'm very happy to be in my home in Western Pennsylvania. It's a great time of the year to be here. Uh, beautiful summer weather. And uh, yeah, hopefully next week I'll, I'll still be here. All right, Joel. Thank you. Thank you very thank you, much. Carter. It's been fantastic once again. It's good to see you. All right, folks. There you have you. Want to, you, you protect your assets. Don't spend as much. How do you not spend as much? Head south to the border or now, thanks to Joel and Mike Cobb and their, to the Azores. So as I tell you every week, let's do this thing.